1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The charismatic pastors of mega churches often preach that faith will bring material rewards. So handing money over to the church is in essence an investment. But in Nigeria, it's hard to know what belongs to the church and what belongs to the pastor. And the long, slow rise in popularity of good old-fashioned vinyl records became a spike more recently. But factories depress them, and now even the actual vinyl itself, are in woefully short supply. And that is hitting smaller bands particularly hard. First up, though... <laughs> Today, Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party, or LDP, held its leadership runoff election. The last round was between two former foreign ministers, Kishida Fumio and Konotaro. Mr. Kishida came out on top. The LDP has dominated Japanese politics since its founding in the 1950s. So, the party's new president will be the country's new prime minister when Suga Yoshihide steps down. In his victory speech, Mr. Kishida said that from today, I will, with all of my energy, get straight to work. How and where he will channel that energy, though, is still something of an open question, as is how much the electorate will support him.
0: This year's election for the presidency was more unpredictable than most. Heading into the vote today, there was some some genuine uncertainty about who would emerge the victor.
1: Noah Snyder is The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief.
0: But this kind of free-for-all, uncertain, circus-like, for the LDP at least, election campaign, I think really masked or distracted from a deeper and more worrying trend in in Japanese politics, namely uh, growing voter apathy and disillusionment from the political process.
1: And given that apathy, how do you think it is that Mr. Kishida came out on top?
0: The dynamics of this election were a bit complicated, but let's unpack them. Kono Taro, former foreign and defense minister, was the favorite in public polls and the favorite amongst younger Diet members in the LDP, uh, who saw him as potentially a more transformative figure, who also, crucially, might help them keep their jobs in elections that are looming in later this fall. Kono-san, however, He's unpopular amongst the party's old guard, and, and they see him as sort of unreliable, uncontrollable. He has a reputation for being a bit of a maverick. So he won the, uh, the vote of the rank and file in the first round of the party's election, but he didn't win enough support amongst his colleagues to win the election outright. So it went into a a second round runoff. There, Kishida's support from within the party really proved decisive. It is, I think, a result that reflects the enduring strength of the LDP's establishment and is in some ways a kind of rebuke of public opinion.
1: So who is Mr. Kishida, though? What kind of leader can we expect him to be?
0: Well, politics is a family business for Mr. Kishida. Both of his father and his grandfather were parliamentarians in the Diet's lower house. His biggest job before this was as foreign minister in the cabinet of former prime minister Abe Shinzo. In Japanese political circles, he's kind of known for being an affable colleague, but a bit of a dull personality.
1: And when he does take office, what are the big challenges that he faces?
0: Well, he takes over from Suga Yoshihide, who has been prime minister for all of a year. Suga's handling of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and sort of his perceived lack of leadership really brought him down. So Kishida's first task is to regain public trust by providing a clear plan for sort of how Japan is going to emerge from the pandemic. He faces slightly more favorable timing than Suga did. Japan's daily caseload is shrinking and the government is planning to lift some restrictions on on movement uh, just this week. But he needs to present a plan that shows leadership to the public. Beyond that, of course, he faces deeper challenges. Japan's population is, is aging and shrinking, and there are long-term economic challenges that come with that. He also has some work to do to build on some policy legacies that Suga left behind. For example, uh, pledged to make Japan reach net zero by 2050. And finally, he will have to sort of maintain this more active and constructive posture that Japan has been playing regionally and internationally, in particular on trade.
1: What has he actually said about tackling all of these challenges?
0: Kishida kind of presents himself as a, an empathetic leader. He talks about listening to voters and, and wanting to sort of move from division to collaboration. And his vision for the country is pretty fuzzy. During the campaign this year, he sought to sort of appeal to all corners of the party um, to present himself as kind of a compromise figure, which proved to be a... A winning strategy, but it doesn't give us much clarity in terms of, of where he thinks uh, Japan ought to go. He has described himself as the dove to Mr. Abe's hawk in the past, but this time around he sounded sort of tougher notes on China in an attempt to appease the party's right wing. He's promised more stimulus to counter the the fallout from the pandemic, but at the same time uh, he's also nodded some of the concerns of, of fiscal hawks who who still worry about Japan's rising public debt load. The main thrust of his campaign was, was the idea that Japan needs a sort of new model of capitalism that would focus more on, on fighting economic inequality. But he's offered few details about how that would look in practice.
1: And what does Mr. Kishida's election mean, do you think, for Japan's role in the world?
0: Well, neither Kishida nor any of the other LDP presidential candidates really departed radically from the basic sort of framework set out by former Prime Minister Abe. There's strong support for Japan's alliance with America. There are increasing worries about uh, Chinese expansionism and and aggression. And there's, you know, an ongoing attempt to shore up Japan's position, both by building up its own defense capacities and and by building sort of networks with others in the region. And Kishida is, is, is on board with that. But I think the real risk in terms of Japan's role in the world is that Kishida proves to be a a weak and perhaps short-lived prime minister, and that Japan, you know, rather than than playing an active role internationally, succumbs to uh, domestic infighting.
1: You mentioned that Japanese voters have quite a bit of apathy of disillusionment. What effects do you think this election will have on that?
0: Well, again, I do think the outcome is a testament to the enduring strength of the LDP establishment and their kind of disregard for broader public opinion. It's, you know, entirely possible that That might motivate more voters to come out and cast protest votes in the diet elections that are are due later this fall. But given the enduring weakness of the Japanese opposition parties, the LDP's grip on power remains pretty secure. It probably heralds a shift towards the more sort of traditional bureaucratic, technocratic type of Japanese government, predictable kind of consensus driven, incremental type change. And again, I worry that that will only deepen this sense of of apathy and and disillusion, especially amongst younger voters.
1: Noah, thanks very much for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
2: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: About half of Nigerians are Muslim, with most of the remaining fraction being Christians. In many churches, the services have congregants reaching for the heavens. In the largest of them, though, the megachurches, attendees are more likely to be reaching for their wallets.
3: These churches are first and foremost just vast, uh, in a huge number of seats, in some up to 100,000. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist. The car parks at these churches resemble something like you would see in other countries at, at sports stadiums.
1: Somebody rejoice in the presence of the Lord this morning! Give him a song!
3: And inside, it's a quite performative, celebratory atmosphere. People leap to their feet uh, in praise. at some of what the pastor uh, says at times. There is music, there are cameras on booms that sweep down to broadcast the whole thing to people watching online. Uh, It's really quite an extraordinary event. And along with plenty of teachings of Christ, amongst the Bible verses are mingled requests uh, for money.
1: I want you to look at the screen and follow the instructions correctly. The Lord loves a cheerful giver.
0: And as you present your...
3: People own- are reminded, as I was when I attended, that they could part with the cash there in person by dropping it into collection buckets or, in fact, by cheque. And we were told who to make it out to or, indeed, online.
1: Please package your offerings and label them correctly. And if you are giving a cheque, you are writing a cheque, please write it in favour of...
3: So it's a a not terribly subtle request for cash is very common in these churches. And what then happens to that cash? The implicit and sometimes rather explicit promise is that those donations will in fact come back to worshippers in in riches for them personally. Uh, Preachers espouse the idea that that faith brings material rewards. Uh, That can be in the form of job offers or more commonly in financial windfalls, hard cash. But to, to sort of benefit from this largesse uh, that will somehow uh, apparently come to people, believers are expected to make these quite generous donations to the church. And millionaire pastors sort of hint that their own wealth, uh, which is very obvious often, is evidence of their piety, that it's a mark of their holiness just how rich those individual pastors are.
1: You say millionaire pastors. I mean, isn't this money going into the church?
3: Experts point to the, the lavish lifestyles of these holy leaders and argue that there really isn't much of a line between what belongs to the pastor and what belongs to the church. And these churches also often have you know, many sub branches, both across Nigeria and, and sometimes across the world. And the pastors of those smaller churches that are under these mega churches also uh, seem to be expected to bring in cash to the church, although it's, it's really put quite so bluntly as that. Uh, but those who fail to deliver that cash can find Christian forgiveness in pretty short supply. Uh, in July, a pastor in a branch of, of Winner's Chapel uh, said he was sacked for failing to raise enough cash. Uh, Winner's Chapel said it was that he didn't attract a larger flock.
1: It's sort of a strange mix then, Christian values with this kind of amassing of wealth.
3: Well, that's right. It does seem a little incongruous at times. But, you know, the the top brass at these megachurches interpret biblical teachings perhaps a little differently to some people. Uh, Leaders like Bishop David Oyedepo zip around in in private jets. Uh, He's even dismissed a report that claimed he was worth $150 million as an insult, uh, saying that that figure was too small. Uh, I mean, in short, he practices the prosperity he preaches and combines the power of the pulpit with uh, really very slick corporate marketing.
1: And prosperity that comes just from involvement in the church?
3: Well, a lot of it, but not all. Uh, Some holy men, we could say, have earthly business interests as well. Uh, These range from construction companies, holiday parks, to satellite broadcasting channels in the US and the UK. Others have online shops, which proudly boast they accept payment in 120 currencies. Bishop uh, Oyedepo's church has a a 10,500-acre campus, uh, called Kananland, Land, which has a bottled water factory, a bank, and a petrol station, as well, of course, as a palatial home for the bishop. Uh, and then several Nigerian churches also own universities.
1: Universities like seminaries,
3: you mean? Uh, well, actually, no, more just like straight up universities. And, and parents like these uh, typical universities, partly because many of Nigeria's public universities are pretty mediocre. These church universities, they boast of their facilities, which are often quite impressive, uh, and their results. You know, One called uh, Covenant in Cannon land claims that 98% of graduates land jobs or employ people themselves within two years of graduating. But there's often a pretty blurry line between megachurches and their businesses, and that matters for tax reasons, because churches themselves aren't taxed, but in theory their businesses are. The trouble, though, is that figuring out exactly where churches end and their businesses begin uh, is pretty difficult.
1: So high prices, the promise of riches, possibly questionable tax structures, this has sort of a familiar smell to it.
3: Well, critics say that, that, you know, the logic of prosperity churches like this uh, is similar, in fact, to that of Ponzi schemes. But with the added advantage that when people do not get rich, you know, pastors can promise that their riches will come in the next life. And you might expect you know, protests about some of this to come from intellectual institutions like universities, but critics point out that in many cases universities themselves have bought into the church's view of the world. One person I spoke to you know, points out that the logic of these prosperity churches is pretty dominant in quite a bit of Nigerian society. Some professors prefer to put pastor or professor on their business card because they see being a pastor as perhaps more valued in the eyes of society than being a professor. All of this can rather end up uh, in a country like Nigeria, where more than 80 million people live on less than $1.90 a day, with congregants getting poorer and poorer, while pastors get richer and richer.
1: Kinley, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's a massive glut of albums coming from big names this year. ABBA fans will delight in their new offering, Voyage. I still have faith in you. Elton John's The Lockdown Sessions is due in October. Cold, cold heart, heart you. <laughs> as is Future Past from Duran Duran. Should do- But you'll find it hard to get your hands on a good old-fashioned vinyl record from these artists, and even harder to get LPs by lesser-known musicians.
4: All of the world's record-pressing plants are basically running completely flat
1: out. Daniel Knowles is an international correspondent with The Economist.
4: Vinyl records have been coming back for about a decade now, and with the pandemic, they've really soared. And the record-pressing plants just can't keep up with the demand.
1: Why is that, though? Why can't the industry just make more records?
4: Well, there aren't that many places left where you can get a record pressed. A lot of the plants closed in the 1990s and the kind of first decade of the 2000s. And then there's this new problem that's emerged this past month, which is that there's a shortage of PVC too.
1: Wait, uh, how does PVC figure in?
4: So PVC is the chemical, polyvinyl chloride, which is the vinyl and vinyl. And it's used for lots of things in construction and medical supplies and cars, but it's also used to make the records. That's just this latest problem. There just isn't very much around, especially the kind of colored vinyl that people want to make
1: their records with. Why isn't there enough of that then?
4: Uh, There was a huge hurricane, Hurricane Ida, in the United States, which knocked out roughly 60% of the capacity. Pretty much all of this stuff is made in the Gulf states of the United States. It's a byproduct of the petroleum industry.
1: And so that leaves bands high and dry if they want to get their records out on vinyl.
4: So I spoke to a heavy metal band from London called Green Lung, And they produced their new album the end of last year, last December. And they've been basically waiting since to get it pressed. They were planning on launching in September and they they still haven't kind of got the vinyl. They're expecting 5,000 copies to be pressed. So I spoke to their lead singer, Tom Templar, who says, you know, it's actually really important to their kind of business model. We're a heavy heavy metal band. So basically we're one of those genres where people still see vinyl as the sort of God format. And I'm going to tell you now, it is killing me how long I've been sitting on these songs and waiting for people to hear them. And I know it's been killing the fans too. So uh, another person I spoke to was Dirk van der Hoeyville of Groove Records, which is a big distributor of dance records in Chicago. And he basically said part of the problem is that all the major labels are kind of now using up what capacity there is in the industry. So you have Taylor Swift's new record, Evermore, which massively sold and reprints of Fleetwood Mac's rumors and he kind of thinks that they're basically hogging the presses.
1: But we are in an era where most listening happens online. Is a shortage of vinyl really that big an issue for the industry more widely?
4: Well it is for smaller bands especially. Streaming does generate money but it does so over a long timeline. Vinyl generates money now so if you take that away it makes it very difficult for bands just to kind of keep going without selling vinyl there's no way we would have been able to go on and put the money up front to go and do a big european tour or fly over to the states so a lot of the sort of future of the band is wrapped up in still in selling physical releases at least in the scene that we're in you know vinyl is the key
1: and tom that we just heard there from green lung dare i ask when i'll be able to get my hands on their record
4: They've got a date now. Their album comes out on October 22nd. The trouble is, you won't be able to get hold of it because it's already completely sold out.
1: So you'll just have to
4: hope that they can get a second pressing and maybe it will be a bit faster than the first one.
1: Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.